Are you with me? Wonderful. That's that's encouraging. (sighs) So, we're in John. Uh, In fact, we started, believe it or not, in 2019, uh, in the early months of each year, we've been working through the Gospel of John, presenting Jesus. And this January, we pick up where we left off, which is in chapter 16. And we're going to work through the important final chapters uh, of this book, finishing it at Easter. And uh, where the other Gospels unpack the history John, who refers to himself as the Jesus whom the Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he unpacks the mystery. Where the others work out, they they work to lay out a full biographical account. John, a deep thinking theologian, is selective and he sets out a series of signs and patterns and I am sayings of Jesus with a clear purpose of presenting Jesus, where chapters 1 to 12 deal largely with events and crowds. Chapters 13 to 17, where we are now, is characterised by times of intimacy, times of intimacy with his disciples, and then chapter 17 with his father. So we pick it up at chapter 16, verse 16, but let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing collection of documents, your word, the Bible. But it's just words on a page. It's just black ink on white paper, unless your Holy Spirit makes it a living word. So we ask, Lord, that you would make your word to each one of us this morning a living word, that your Holy Spirit would come and use Brian if you can, but however you do it, I think we want to say in our hearts, each one of us, Lord, speak to me. I'm listening. I need your word. I need the word of life. Come and Holy Spirit, speak to me this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his kingdom. Amen. So, John 16 from verse 16. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what what does he mean? In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. 
so with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. What, what is Jesus doing? What's he doing? He's prepping them. And he's giving them his promises. You will see me. Your grief will turn to joy. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. These disciples are about to face the darkest, the worst, the most painful of times in their experience of sharing life with Jesus. For the last three years, they have been having the ride of their lives. What they've been experiencing though they were slow to recognize it at first because it was, well, way beyond their wildest expectations and imaginings. What they've been experiencing is the fulfillment of a dream that God's people have been carrying in their hearts for centuries. They've seen water into wine, thousands fed, lepers healed and, and flesh restored, the blind see, the dead restored to their loved ones. But more, they've seen the promise. They've seen the promise fulfilled the Messiah, the long-awaited promised deliverer, the champion of his people, the Lion of Judah. He's here. It's real. It's happening. They've seen the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the adulation of the crowds welcoming Messiah and his band of followers. It's been an incredible ride. But this is all about to change. And at phenomenal speed. There's a terrible shock coming for Peter, James and John and the rest of them. And they won't understand it. It will make no sense at all. Everything they've taken on board, everything they've learned, everything they've understood from this amazing prophet, teacher, healer, miracle worker, is all about to be tipped out in a great baffling, splurging heap of confusion. Have you ever felt like that? Ever found yourself saying, why? 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 It makes no sense. Life was going so well and then disaster struck. Or maybe it hasn't been going so well just now. And there's an accumulating heap of disappointment, pain and frustration. And it makes no sense. What is Jesus doing? He's prepping them. He's not indifferent to their feelings and circumstances. He understands. And he's not indifferent to your feelings and circumstances. The most empathetic person who has ever lived understands. And he wants you to be prepped and primed for what's coming. He wants you to know his promises and to stand on them. 
What's Jesus doing? He's prepping his disciples. He's warning them. Back at verse 2, he tells them, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. This is terrifying stuff. And he's preparing them. He says, in a while, you will see me no more. What's he saying? What's he seeing? He's seeing his arrest, his trial, his humiliation, floggings, beatings, naked, nailed to a cross, desolation, agony, death, burial, disappearance. You will see me no more. What an understatement. But then, after a little while, you will see me. I will come back. I will be with you. But they didn't understand. And all too often, nor do we. You won't see me. Sometimes it feels like that. It feels like the Lord is miles away. As if he's withdrawn from us. We can't see him. We can't sense him. He seems far away. John of the Cross writes about the dark night of the soul. And our buddy Pete, who's, I think, watching online, he's not very well. He often reminds me about the dark night of the soul. At such times, my circumstances, what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, are not telling me that I'm the blessed and treasured child of God. My feelings are not telling me that I'm a blessed and treasured child of God. He seems far away. But you know, feelings are not good leaders. There are facts, there are faith. And there are feelings. And it's important to get them in the right way. Simply, I think of them like a train. What goes at the front? The feelings? Feelings go at the front? No. Facts go at the front. Facts is the engine. Facts is truth. The truth of who God is, what he's like, the truth of his promises go at the front. They're the engine. If you put feelings at the front... You're in danger of coming off track. Facts, what comes next? Faith, what comes next? Feelings. See, feelings are bad leaders, but they're good followers. But they need to follow what starts with the facts, the truth of who God is, what he's like, what his promises are. Facts, faith, feelings. Get those in the right order. Don't put the feelings at the front. So, when my feelings are telling me that I don't feel as if I'm a treasured child of God or that God's in control, what do I do? Do I walk away? Do I give up and go the, girl, the, the world's way? Do I look for comfort and reassurance in worldly things? Is that what happens to you when things aren't going so well? Find a bit of comfort in something worldly or even something sinful, in my stuff, in the things that I've got, or in fantasies. Fantasies are a surprisingly common form of escapism, of worldly comfort, of hiding from God. Proverbs 12, 11 tells us, those who work will have abundance, but those who chase 
fantasies have no sense, a.k.a. those who chase fantasies are stupid. When the Lord seems distant or unresponsive, do you give up and go the world's way, seek worldly comfort, worldly security, or do you hold on? Do you wait for the Lord? Tim Keller uh, is a New York pastor. He was, I was listening to one of his talks, and he's actually talking about our attitude to immigrants. And he tells of how his wife's grandfather, about 100 years ago, left his wife and baby in Eastern Europe while he traveled to Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania to get a job as a miner. And he told his wife to wait. And she waited. Several years later, she receives a ticket for a steamship to cross the Atlantic and the name of a station, a, the, the, station the train station of a particular town. That's what she got. And so she gets herself organized eventually and she goes on this journey with her child. And she gets to this station and there is, with his pony and trap, her husband. And she says, how did you know? Because they, you know, they didn't have WhatsApp. <laughs> how did you know? And his, he replied, oh, I've been here every day at the time when the train comes in for the last three months. Just waiting, waiting for his wife and child to arrive. And it wasn't Tim Keller's point in, the, in that, but it, the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to wait. Will you just wait on me? Sometimes we just need to wait on the Lord. God's word tells us in Isaiah, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait, those who hope, in the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is God's promise. But like most of his promises, it comes with a premise. What's the premise? Those who wait upon the Lord, those who hope in him will rise up. Do you want to look do you want to renew your strength? Do you want to rise up with wings like eagles? Do you want to restore your youth? Wait on the Lord. Hope in him. The Lord is looking for those who will wait on him. Hope on him. Worshippers who will continue to worship even when it appears in the foreground of our lives that the things immediately before us that there is no cause for hope or encouragement. Look at Job. The story of Job essentially addresses a question which Satan presents to God. I think mockingly, it goes like this. Huh. So you think you can create beings who will worship you irrespective of their circumstances. That's essentially what Job is about. Look at Habakkuk. At the end of Habakkuk, we read, Though the fig tree does not bud, 
and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, so the circumstances are pretty dire. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. I will worship irrespective of my circumstances because God is worthy of my worship. And I believe that it is through worship that we gain authority in the spiritual realm. What was Habakkuk doing? He was looking beyond the immediate, beyond the foreground, beyond what he could see, beyond his circumstances. He was looking beyond what he could see to the unseen, to the unseen faithful God. He was looking up. His confidence is in God, in God's promises, in God's track record. He knew that God is good, that he's faithful, that in spite of all indications to the contrary, and then he celebrates. He does a little dance, verse 19. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. What's he doing? He's worshipping. In spite of his circumstances, he's worshipping. And in Job, in spite of everything that was thrown at him, and read Job, what was thrown at him was almost unbelievable, unbearable. But Job didn't crack up. He didn't give up. He says, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. He's saying, I know that he is a redeeming God whose mercies are new every morning. The Father is looking for worshippers. We read that in John 4.23. Father is looking for worshippers who will worship him, not because of their wonderful circumstances, not because they're feeling great. We can thank him when we have wonderful circumstances. We can thank him when we're feeling great, but we worship him because of who he is and what he is. The disciples, though, they don't understand. Let's look at the disciples for a moment. What do you see? In the margin of my Thompson's chain reference Bible, next to verse 18, where they're saying, we don't understand, Thompson puts in the margin as a little subheading, disciples dull. <laughs> and I don't think he means they're not great company or they're boring. What he's saying is they're not very bright. And um, actually... The disciples don't get a very good press, do they? Matthew 15, 15. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Jesus replies, are you still so dull? Matthew 16, 11. Jesus says, do you still not understand? How is it that you don't understand? Luke 18, 34. The disciples didn't understand any of this. They hadn't a clue what Jesus was talking about. Luke 24, 25. How, Jesus speaking, how foolish you are and slow of heart. And that's just a sample. The disciples that Jesus chose were not top of the class. 
They were not super intellects or super athletes that he could have chosen. They were average guys. In fact, the New Testament presents them as seeming pretty inept. And what's the point? What's the point? Don't allow yourself to be thrown off course, to be thrown off opportunities to serve and to share in the life of Jesus, to be an extension of the life of Jesus, because that's, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what we are to, are and are to be, an extension, you know, like the branches of the vine, an extension of the life of Jesus in the world. Let's not be thrown off that by limiting what God can do in you and through you because you feel unqualified or you feel just average. Never duck out because you feel that you can't do it. Never claim, it's too much for me, I'm not able. No. Look instead at the promises of God. In the prayer time this morning, the promise came in the prayer time. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I often go to Isaiah 41 verse 10 where God gives his promise. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Let me illustrate. Do you know, in round numbers, I think that I have preached here over a hundred times. And I say that not for any accolade, just the wonder of it. That one so broken and unqualified could be useful. Do you know, in my previous church, where I was for 35 years, I preached exactly twice. And on the first occasion, I was told afterwards, an hour is too long. <laughs> and on the second occasion, in front of the entire church gathered in a church meeting that I was chairing in the absence of the pastor, that wasn't a sermon. Okay, but 12 years ago, when Jason asked me, he said, could you do a talk about how you get into the Bible? I hadn't got a clue. But very foolishly, I said, oh, well, I know this illustration about five ways of engaging with the Bible. And Jason goes, great, you can do five talks. <laughs> but seriously, at that moment, he didn't know this, but I hadn't got a clue, not one sentence. I just had to try. I just had to step out and try and trust God. And guess what? He resourced me in ways that I wouldn't have anticipated for those five talks. And I dare to believe that he's been doing the same thing for the last 12 years. Look at Peter at Pentecost, this inept young man. How many sermon classes had Peter been to? How many sermons had he preached before Pentecost? How many pages of notes did he have? None. 
But trusting God, he steps up and he does what he can, where he is with what he's got. The Holy Spirit takes over. The Holy Spirit honours that daring, venturesome faith. And 3,000 come to believe in Jesus and are baptised and added to the church that day as a consequence of Peter's unrehearsed preaching. But it's not just about preaching, it's whatever you're called to, whatever you dare to. It's about life, life in all its fullness, about whatever is going on in your life, whatever he calls you to or leads you into, a life lived in obedience to the promptings of his spirit, in obedience, in surrender, in dependency upon God. Do you know, it's the most exciting adventure you could possibly sign up for. You have no idea what you are capable of when you step out in obedience and dependence and trust, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could be a great small group leader. We need some more small group leaders. Or maybe you could be a great witness to somebody alongside you in the office or at work who ultimately finds faith and a saving relationship with Jesus and an, and an eternity with Jesus through you through your witness, because of you, because you let your relationship with Jesus overflow into your life and into the lives of others. I particularly just want to speak to those who are young, under 25, under 35, under 45. You're all young. You are strategically of great importance to the great in gathering of souls that God wants to see happening in our generation. The reason I say that is because your peers, the people alongside you, the people you work with, the people you socialize with, the people you social media with, they haven't yet put their life view set in concrete. They're still open. Younger people are much more open we, we know through statistics from the Alpha course throughout the country, throughout the world, that, that people who are under 35, under 45, are much more open to new ideas, new thoughts. And, you know, every one of them has within them a creator-shaped vacuum that God put there that can only be filled by the creator himself. And it's not that difficult. You know, you just need to be honest about who you are. I, I, for me, often it would be, how was your weekend, someone would say. I'd say, brilliant weekend. Yesterday, church was fantastic. And I'd say a bit about what it went on with church. I'd try to make it kind of accessible. I wasn't speaking some foreign language or code. But just to give the idea that I loved it. And it was great. And why it was great. And then I'd try and say things like, have you ever thought very much about Christian things before? And you'll find out a bit about them, you know. And then you might say, "Do you know? I, you know, I'd, I'd love to love to talk to you about what what I believe a Christian is." And then you just unpack the gospel. It's not that difficult. I remember I remember working in the bank, 
when I was a young man. I remember working in the bank. It wasn't difficult. I mean, I wore a little badge that said, Jesus is alive today. So that's a bit of a clue. But I remember the guy I worked on. It was an Irish chap that was from Belfast. His name was John. And, he, and we sometimes have our sandwiches. I said, should we have our sandwiches together? Just an opportunity for conversation. And he actually shared me. He says, I, I, I belong to the IRA. Which was a bit shocking, but... The Lord is good. He just, and I just said, oh, I belong to Jesus. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, over a period of lunchtimes, he came to Christ. He came to Christ. I remember another guy. I just met him at a cafe at lunchtime. Uh, Vince, Vince Sladen. And we just had chats. And he came to Christ. In fact, I, he, I, became his, I was the best man at his wedding, which was a bit of a shock to me. But, you know... It's not difficult if you're willing, if you're open, and if you just let the life of Jesus flow up and in and through you. He wants to share his life with you. He's the vine, you're the branches. Come on. Don't let the enemy put you down. Or lower your sights or tell you lies about how unqualified or inadequate you are. Raise your sights. Aim high. Do you know, like young David with his sling. What did he have? Five stones and a sling. But that wasn't all he had, because he had confidence in the Lord of heaven's armies. He goes to Saul, King Saul, and he says, we find this in 1 Samuel 17, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Will you go? Will you go and fight? Are you willing? Are you available for what the Lord wants you to do? And he remembers the Lord's faithfulness. Verse 37. I like this. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Have you experienced God's faithfulness in your life? Well, the Lord who has been faithful to you will be faithful again. And Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. And he was, wasn't he? Finally, there's something we can learn here from Jesus about a Christian's joy. In this metaphor that Jesus is using, he's saying something quite profound about a Christian's joy. Let me read from, again from verse 20. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. Jesus is talking about a woman in childbirth who's in pain. This is before anaesthetics. This is before epidurals. But then he says, when the child is born, she forgets her pain. Notice, guys, he doesn't say when the child is born, the pain is over. It's not over. It's not like suddenly her body immediately feels fine. No, it doesn't work like that. I've been there, and I've watched this a number of times. It's not that the pain is gone. He says she forgets it. Now, bear with me. When the Bible says God remembers your sins no more, and it does lots of times, does it mean 
he doesn't know about them anymore. So he looks down and says, oh yeah, Brian, Brian, he's sinned, he's pretty bad. But for the life of me, I, I can't put my finger on what it was he did. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. What it means is he refuses to focus on it. He refuses to be affected by my history of sin. He refuses to be influenced by it. In that sense, he forgets it. What happens to a mother when her baby is born? Her mind goes furiously to the child. She looks at it. She wants to see what gender is it. Is it okay? Is it healthy? Is it all there? Count the fingers, count the toes. Who's it like? She wants to see it. Her mind is captured by it. It's not that the joy this woman has in her child eliminates the sorrow and pain. It overwhelms it. It overshadows it. And this is what a Christian's joy is like. It's unique. The world has nothing like it. In the world, joy and sorrow can never overlap. They are mutually exclusive. Sorrow and pain drive out joy in the world. But in Jesus, there is a joy which is impervious to pain, to sorrow, to circumstance. A joy that will coexist with and overwhelm the greatest grief. As Jesus says in our reading, you will rejoice and nothing will take away your joy. You know, when you grasp the truth that God loves you completely unconditionally, to the extent that he took his only beloved begotten son and allowed him to be given and sacrificed so that you don't have to be. To go in your place. When you realize that's the extent of God's unconditional love for you, you have forgiveness, reconciliation, new life, eternal life. When you grasp that, that in spite of any and all of appearances to the contrary, God is in control, that Jesus is Lord of all, that he loves you, that you are his treasure, you are his joy that was set before him. Do you know the Father created you for a purpose? The first purpose was to delight in you and that you would worship him. That nothing can pluck you from his hand and nothing comes to you that he doesn't see. That in his divine alchemy, however bad it seems, that he can't put it all together for you for good. When you grasp this, when you know that God is faithful to all his promises, you may, if I may quote, together with 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards, you may, when you grasp the love of God and his faithfulness and his, his supremacy, in spite of all circumstances, you may look down on the whole army of worldly afflictions under your feet and consider with joy that however great or numerous they are, let them all join their forces against you and put on their most terrifying appearances, vigor and violence against you. And you may know 
that will all be in vain. Jesus said, I will see you and you will rejoice. Can I invite the worship team, Matt and the worship team, to come forward? Finally, Jesus says something about prayer in this passage. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. Do you want things to change? Do you want things to change in your life? Do you want things to change in your home? Do you want things to change in your work life, in your business? Do you want things to change in your church? Pray. Do you want more of God in your life? Do you want your love for Jesus to grow and grow with knowledge and depth of insight? Pray. That's how Paul prayed for the Philippians. That their love for Jesus would grow and grow with knowledge and depth of insight. Do you want to move in the power of the Holy Spirit? Pray. Do you want to see revival? Do you want to see the church alive? Do you want to see... I'm loving this metaphor that Jason brought us last week. That we would be like logs that are burning. So hot that just something that's close by spontaneously ignites. Do you want to have a life and a character and experience where you're full of the glory of God like a fire so that others catch light by being close to you? Do you want to see revival? Do you want to see lives changed and circumstances, the circumstances of marriages and families and homes redeemed? Well, pray, pray, pray. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Amen.